internet, what do I know? I'm a pair of boots with a rifle. My name is Matthew Kroll. And they found peace, and we're still here. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film All Quiet on the Western Front. Side note, Shahir, I've been calling this and the book All's Quiet for my entire life. Wow, yeah, that's... I can see how you could do that. Old, is that is that like a Bugs Bunny reference or something like that? Like like I feel like Bugs Bunny would be all quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, yeah, yeah that like sounds that. correct. That <laughs> sounds like some Looney Tunes bullshit. Which uh, I just started rewatching Looney Tunes this week, by the way. Or actually, Looney Tunes and uh, my son and I started watching Tom and Jerry cartoons on Saturday morning. Like the and old ones? The old, old Tom and Jerry cartoons. How and, do you find them? Uh, they're all on HBO Max. Uh, I also have a Blu-ray box set of the Looney Tunes co- um, collection. Because wow. I'm obsessed with the Looney Tunes collection. Huh. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, the original Tom and Jerry cartoons are on HBO Max. They're great. Um, I'm sure there'll be a moment where we'll run into some overt racism or overt um, something problematic from the from that period. Sure, um, sure, 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 sure. But at this point, he is really, really enjoying them, uh, and they're, they're a lot of fun to watch. Uh, I'm sure you know someone has done some kind of analysis of the of the actual structure of it. I'm always amazed at how how many episodes there are of it. For one, where the central premise is always Tom is going to try to chase Jerry, and Jerry's going to evade Tom. And they yeah. always like they always come up with something new, um, so uh, I'm a big fan. Matt, how are you? I'm doing all right. I was just looking up how many seasons of Tom and Jerry there were. Apparently, there were five. Five seasons, and but these are all eight minute cartoons, and there were a lot of like how many per season? Uh, actually, I want to make sure that this is the correct like the I wanted the original Tom and Jerry. Right. <laughs> it feels like there were more, but I often find that. Old TV shows, I'm like, oh, there was like eight or nine seasons. It's yeah. like, there was three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just digging through right now. Uh, there's, this has been rebooted so many times. Holy shit. There was a Tom and Jerry movie uh, just a few, uh, just last year. Uh, I believe directed by the same, uh, I, th- I think his name is Tim Story, who directed uh, the Fantastic Four movies. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, I did not check it out, but uh, at any rate. Uh, oh, interesting. The Tom and Jerry show mm. is 16 episodes, and it ran one season on ABC in 1975. Then in 1980, there was the Tom and Jerry comedy show on CBS, 15 episodes. Then Tom and Jerry Kids, which was 65 episodes in 1999 and 1993. Then Tom and Jerry Tales, at 26 episodes in 2006, over 28, and it goes on from there. Was that so, the, ori- is the, so the original is from 1980? I, I thought uh, it was The from- second, that's not the original. The original is from 1975. Right. Ah, okay. But there's only 16 episodes in that first season and then 15 in that second one in 1980, which, again, you're like, oh, there has to be a, th- a trillion of these cartoons. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know what it is, too? I think it's – now we're just talking about formatting of old school yeah. cartoons. But I think it honestly is the fact that an episode of Tom and Jerry and cartoons and animated programming of that ilk had about three to five different stories per half-hour episode. Like they right, have like the right. two big ones and like three tiny skits. Yeah, I used to love um, – with Looney Tunes, they would release movies, which were essentially compendiums where mm. they would take – um, uh, like four or five e- episodes of Looney Tunes and then wrap them with a big story around it. Um, and the big story really wouldn't go anywhere. It would just be like kind of a gateway to get to the episode. Uh, but I used to watch those all the time and it was like, oh, I'm watching a movie. But essentially what you're just watching five episodes. Um, they're a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think, okay, now I'm just falling down a <laughs> yeah, rabbit hole here. falling down the uh, rabbit hole. So yeah. there was a Tom and Jerry packaged show in 1965 to 72 on CBS. Right. I don't know what that means. It doesn't say what it is or what it consists of. Right. There's a lot of Tom and Jerry. It's yeah. just all over the place. 
Well, uh, but you know what else there's a lot of, Shahir? War movies? War movies. <laughs> there are a lot of war movies. Um, before <laughs> we we'll jump talk to, about, yeah, you know, after some stuff. Before we jump to the war movies, I, I just want to say uh, the, this has just happened, obviously, uh, at the time of this recording, but there has, mm-hmm. of course, been a devastating earthquake uh, in Turkey and uh, in, the border to, uh, in the border of Turkey and Syria. Um, and, of course... Uh, uh, it is devastating to watch how many people are affected. I think the death toll is something around 2,000 people. Um, but uh, one thing to remember as well, with Syria in particular, um, there's been an ongoing civil war there uh, yeah. for, for a long time. So people are uh, struggling to um, get aid to Syria at all. Uh, there's a terrific documentary on Netflix about the White Helmets, who are a Syrian rescue force. Um uh, I think I saw a video the way they were, they were risking someone this morning. But anyway, I just wanted to point out, uh, you know, we wanted to shout out, uh, you know, support for uh, any aid that is going in that direction. Um, and you can um, look at uh, Oxfam and Doctors Without Borders for how to support Syria. I believe the Syrian White Helmets actually have a GoFundMe page. Okay. Uh, I haven't verified it. I've, I've, I've looked at it. It's, it's set up by somebody else. And again, we're talking about a country with like um, very poor access to like proper infrastructure. Um, so, uh, so, so verifiability, you know, notwithstanding, uh, I would uh, encourage our listeners to support, as I will be doing um, in the next uh, bit. And, you know, to anyone who might be listening from that region, um, you know, uh, we send our best wishes and love to everyone out there. Very much so. Yeah, Doctors Without Borders is a phenomenal uh, a group that does good all over the place. <clears throat> so it doesn't surprise me that they're doing good work uh, over there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and also, I believe, uh, in our second b- bit of uh, uh, pre-World War I business, <laughs> yeah. uh, there is uh, an email. There is. There's an email that came a couple of weeks ago. And actually, we could have saved this one for our top 10, which is inevitably... So if I'm looking correctly at our schedule, we're doing All Quiet on the Western Front this week. Next week, we're taking a trip to Quantum Mania. The following week, we're taking a trip... Uh, to oh, well, we're going to listen to some women talking, uh-huh. and then we're going to do our best of uh, twenty twenty two episode. I'll right? type it in. I'll type it into the schedule right, <laughs> right. now. So best of it's a li- at least a month away, and that would also tie bring us in to the Oscars, and then we could have some fun after that, right? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's the thing. It's funny. I got my. <laughs> I got. I have very little time to watch movies, as I know you do as well. Yeah, and uh, I got my bill. Uh, for the for AMC uh, A list, yeah, uh, and I think I haven't gone to the theater in like forever. Oh, actually, after the email, we got to talk about that too. Yes, because Quantumania releases after we normally record. Uh, I actually have bought tickets no, already. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Let's oh. do the email. That'll oh, surprise oh, you. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I, I do know the news you're talking about. Anyway, yeah. Vincent emailed us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail to say a couple things, and I wanted to shout this out uh, at the end, Vincent. Um, uh, happy b- belated 400 episodes. Can you believe it's been 15 episodes since our 400th? Uh, my top 10 are as follows. Uh, and this is Vincent's top 10 for 2022. At number 10, nope. At number 9, Top Gun Maverick. At number 8, the movie that we are reviewing tonight, All Quiet on the Western Front, front, which is usurped at number 7 by Puss in Boots 2. Is it Puss in Boots 2 or Puss in Boots 3? I think I it's 3. I think it's 3. My son went and saw it recently. I couldn't go with him. Also, uh, I'm hearing it's like fucking great. Yeah, but my, my son really enjoyed it. Uh, if, take that review. Yeah. Uh, at number six, After Sun. Number five, Glass Onion. Number four, RRRR. Uh, number three, The Territory, a documentary about the Amazon rainforest. Uh, number two, Prey, the Comanche dub. And number one, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Yeah. Um, Vincent goes on to say, The Territory absolutely rocked me. And again, shout out to uh, Vincent for putting a film on our radars that uh, hasn't got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure why it wasn't nominated for Best Documentary, but I don't think it was ever going for that. It's an example of filmmaking as an active tool 
tool for good. And we are going to talk about that topic in a little bit more detail uh, tonight. Uh, P.S. Not intending to this be read on the air. Sorry about that, Vincent, but it is. Uh, but you both inspired me in recording a podcast with my cousin oh. called Once Removed Podcast. You can find it at onceremovedpodcast.podbean.com. It often deals with movies, though I would never dare call it a movie podcast as there is only one. That's right. Do you have any advice for making consistently great episodes? Whoa. First off, Vincent, uh, um, we love the fact that in in some small part we may have been an inspiration for you, but that you are off making your own movie podcast. Uh, I've checked it out. I haven't downloaded any episodes yet, so I will uh, definitely chime in uh, once I've once I've had an opportunity to listen to those. Matt, any thoughts about how to make a consistently great episodes? Have we ever done that? I don't know if that's no, true. No, but I'll tell you what what I'm actually kind of proud of. Yeah. Um, I think consistently, and this is me doing all the made up math in my own head lab. Yeah. Um, one thing I've always strive for uh, and that we've tried to do in this podcast is keep it as um keep the audio at a certain quality level right that is i will call the 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 base bottom of professional right. <laughs> uh like like and i've tried to you know i i i, I bought some equipment that i should have and i have a, a an actual um now that doesn't say you need to do any of this to do it but just make sure whatever you do if your whatever your audio is as long as it's clear enough and consistent Right. Uh, honestly, uh, I think listenability goes a long way. That's why, in particular, like if we have a guest or we're having technical issues, I like to call it out at the beginning of the show mm-hmm. because I find as well, if you set up the the audience for like, hey, just so you know, this is happening, people are much more forgiving on the off chance that you do. Because again, podcasting, hobby. It's a, it's a thing <laughs> that, uh, you know, uh, you do because you kind of love it. And uh, I would say those are my pieces of advice also. Going in on that, do it because you love it. Set a schedule, but make sure it's a schedule that you can maintain happily. Um, <laughs> Which I think is, uh, doubtable in our case sometimes. Well, listen, we've been doing one a week for eight years, or a hundred years, or three years, or whatever it's been. Uh, so, but yeah, no, I, I think it's awesome. Uh, I'm very happy that you are doing that. I will check it out as well. Uh, once removed podcast. Uh, actually, um, to Vincent, the best piece of advice or the best uh, thing that has happened uh, is something that Matt has actually done, and I want to shout this out here, which is that he has made sure that we are consistently delivering an episode every Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, <laughs> even and, and if it doesn't happen, it's usually my fault. 5.30. Uh, 5.30. Uh, oh, it was 5.30 p.m. <laughs> yeah. There you go. See, I don't even know the schedule. Uh, but Matt has made sure that we do deliver an episode every week and have done so for 415 episodes now. Uh, and I think... Uh, consistency as well as uh, a base level of quality audio quality is the yeah. is is two things you can control uh, uh other than that uh judging from this email i'm sure you're uh uh have intelligent thoughtful things to say about movies and and that's just going to come through anyway also wacky graphics wacky graphics make those although this week no wacky graphic no something and so this is again peek behind the curtains we do have conversations where it's like certain movies where we're like particularly for me uh certain movies that involve real people or real events i'm always like oh should we insert our wacky faces into this depends uh, how wacky the movie is it depends on the it, it depends on literally a million factors that are not quantifiable in a generalized like yes or no to this type of thing way yeah yeah uh, uh, it's feeling, and uh, I felt that this one doesn't get a wacky photo. Doesn't get a wacky photo. All right, well. Uh, I did pick something I really liked, though. Okay. Uh, if you, it's basically, uh, I picked a, just a, a juxtaposition of of the happy main character and the very sad main character. Uh, uh, is it uh, Paul, who is uh, yeah. going through uh, certainly an experience? 
Um, Matt, could you tell us what the Oscar-nominated film and Vincent's number eight movie, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, is about? I sure could. A young German soldier's terrifying experiences and distress on the Western Front during World War One. World War One. Now, you run a history channel. I do. Um, from your experience of talking about World War One, is there anything... Now, and, I, and I'm asking this as a person who actually... You know, I loosely know some things about World War One. Um, I am a pacifist by nature, um, but I don't have a you know encyclopedic. You know, I can't. Sure. If someone told me who asked me what the main players in World War One and what the main reason of the conflict was, I would struggle to to a ham sandwich. Yeah. Um, no, okay, it's. <laughs> That's a reference to to an Alan Moore Joker comic, isn't it? You no, know, it's uh. God and, and I don't. It's a dumb thing. Uh, I don't want to go into it. Okay, uh, right, but right. the both world wars are weird and complicated, and we're not going to get into them here. If you'd like to learn more about those things, you can actually just go to Extra History, or it's actually today was supposed to be renamed Extra History. It's not quite yet. It's still extra credits. We did a channel split, right? Um, but. Uh, how would I how would I summarize World War I? And I'm not asking you to be the historian. I just, you know, perhaps as you've been reading, there's maybe some tidbits you could offer um, about World War One that you've come across. And, I will say this. Yeah. I will say that when covering a historical war and something as large as a, a world war, mm -hmm. um, it is never simple. And you always need more time. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, the things that we do on Extra History is we pick a very specific thing. This isn't World War One, but the one that's coming to mind uh, is our we did a Path to Pearl Harbor uh, series right. for World War Two, which is a lead up to um, the hostilities between the United States and Japan. And that covered for five episodes for like 50 minutes or something, the socioeconomic and political machinations and tensions between two nations that were creeping towards each other in the Pacific for a hundred years. Right. So like there's all these different things. Like there's always like the the big moment. Like you hear about like in this film, like no man's land, right? Like right. or the, the when the soldiers are fighting over what however many yards of 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 land and trenches that means literally nothing. Right. Um the, those are the things that you always hear about and see in movies and, and whatnot. But the history about how you get to that point, I find incredibly fascinating because it's literally at the end of the day, just people. And I think we see this in this movie. It's people not wanting to be wrong. Right. And it's <laughs> fucked up how many people have to die we just did a series again this isn't all, all we do so many history series that the only the fresh ones are like in my brain right we're, we're just uh i think we're finishing up this week frederick the great mm. um uh kind of leads in and they we we there was a series of wars that frederick fought for years years i think 300 i oh god i'm gonna butcher this it's either 300 or 30,000 or 60,000 men dead mm -hmm. and at the end of it the borders just went back to the way they were everyone right. went home and nothing changed right and not that borders and land are worth life mm -hmm. uh in in the in the grand context of war but like it's fucked up how the, I mean, here's something that's completely not new. How the old and rich send the young and poor to die. Right. <laughs> uh, for literally no reason other than them wanting to be right and sometimes resource management. And that's it. 
Right. Uh, it's fucked up. It's <laughs> fucked up. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Hot take. Don't like war. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think we are both at the age where um, it, it's very unlikely either of us would ever get enlisted. Uh, but we're also probably uh, not military... Uh, enthusiasts. Uh, not to say that you know people who serve in the military. Um, who oh, listen, we need you know, a military. We, we need, need a, military. a damn strong but, military. But, but There's but no question about that. We are not those people. We, you and I, are not those people. No. Um, and I'm happy so, to have some of my tax dollars go toward that military. Again, in the United States, whether or not the amount is, but you need one uh, because and, people are people. And and correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, because uh, we had this conversation on air. This was not a movie you were looking forward to. No, no, not no, at no, all, no, no, right? No, and um, we've covered it kind of in the past too, right? Like, I, I don't like historical war movies, right? Um, I just don't. Uh, I, and, and you know what's funny? Uh, and I hope this isn't disappointing any uh, extra historians out there, but like, especially after working at Extra Credits and on Extra History. I like war movies even less. Right. Because what they do, and, and this isn't to say that there aren't moments of emotional resonance and lessons that can be learned and gleaned and 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 changes in hearts and minds that can be made. No matter what, it's still too simple. Right. Even this movie, which I think has incredible depth, is still too simple and is presented in too simple of a way. Right. And uh, because it is a real-life thing that I've, Again, if not World War One, then just uh, honestly at this point, hundreds of other historical stories where large inflection points are like the draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how we got there and the sheer hubris or avarice or sometimes just miscommunications that bring us there mm-hmm. is is I find far more fascinating. So when I just see a slice and not the extrapolation of it all, I'm always like, well, what's the... Like this isn't the complete thing, and it's hard to get the complete thing anywhere. Not everyone has the right. time and whatever. I'm, I'm rambling. <laughs> I don't like war movies. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's fair. And war movies obviously cover uh, an immense genre uh, or an expansive genre, uh, rather, because there are different uh, facets of war movies. There are war movies that involve the the reporting of wars. There are war movies that involve, um, you know, you, you're talking about your um, films like Three Kings, which involve a heist within a, within a war situation. Um, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, sneakily, uh, a film like JFK, a movie about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, is actually an anti-war film about the Vietnam War. Um, and, you know, so so it, it is an immense uh, um, genre of films. And it, just, you know, why we're talking about our great filmmakers, uh, there's, there's been this thing, uh, you know, it always sort of tends to happen, East Coast, West Coast, um, Spielberg and Scorsese, um, this sort of conversation about Scorsese's uh, infatuation with the mob movie. And, you know, like, I think one of the things that, that never really gets talked about in almost the same way is that Spielberg is infatuated with the war movie mm. and has made several war movies, probably more war movies than Scorsese has made mob movies at this point, but it doesn't sort of seem to get talked about in the same way. Because right. I think uh, uh, with that conversation, there is a level of prestige offered to a war movie because, and and the, I, I can't take credit for this thought. This was came from the uh, the big picture with Sean uh, Finnessy. Um, this idea that the war the war movie is prestigious not only because uh, it deals with the morality of life and death in nation states, but also because it requires such a huge. Um, 
such a huge arm of the machinery of making films. Mm. So a lot is involved in making a war movie. Um, and and it and it there's there's a lot of resources thrown at screen at screens when it comes to war movies. So um, needless to say, you know if Spielberg, you know when Spielberg made Saving Private Ryan, that was a notable event before the movie had even come out because of what that represented in a, both the nation's psyche and the filmmaker having made it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to point out just something that sort of. I think maybe an interesting way to frame this conversation as well, which is that a couple of weeks ago, I uh, we were up uh, upstate New York, and we stumbled into a uh, an incredible uh, thrift store. I can't actually remember the name of it now, but it was close to Mohawk Mountain where we had gone for a one day ski trip. Mm-hmm. And I, I picked up a series of books while I was there, and this was a pure coincidence. But I picked, I happened to pick up a copy of All Quiet on the Western Front um, by uh, Eric Maria Rimaquet, and I have started reading it. I didn't actually get to finish it before the uh, before watching the movie, mm-hmm. uh, but I will do it. And actually, uh, making the uh, watching the movie has made me want to finish this a little bit more. I'm a little a little over a third of the way through that. I can see it. He's holding it up to the Zoom call audience for the uh, yeah. for the audio listeners. That would be all of you. And uh, he uh, he is holding both of these books. He's going to talk about well. And then the second one I picked up was uh, a biography of Federico Fellini uh, by Taylor Kirzik. And um, I I think I mentioned this uh, in another episode, but it was just kind of uh, I went back to read it just to remind myself of what of what was written here. But I thought this was a really interesting point. Or an interesting idea that was introduced at the just in the introduction, and I haven't gotten very far in this book either. Um, but the 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 introduction has Fellini meeting with some journalists, including uh, Tullio, and he and Tullio, the, the author, writes this: um, "We were disillusioned by the political inwardness that followed liberation, and we wanted our cinema to take on our social issues diagnostically, and even expected it to be prescri- uh, prescriptive." In the cine club, we were constantly evaluating films based on how big or small their influence might be on current events or the future. Does film does this film explain the real causes of evil in the world, we'd ask? Does it offer any contribution for change? We rejected classic anti-militarialism, uh, militarialism, like All Quiet on the Western Front, because by condemning the First World War, such films hadn't managed to stop the second. And I think that's an interesting idea because what it's pointing to is something that I think uh, maybe best exemplified by a, so- a song, War, War, What Is It Good For? But also maybe an extension of that idea, which is war films, why do we make them? And we've talked a little bit about this on, uh, I think, our Dunkirk episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really does come to the fray. Uh, you know, I noticed that in your reaction, which I, I think was entirely justified, which is that this is a film that's been nominated for Best, um, best Picture, um, but... It's not one that we were excited about seeing. It's not one we had heard much about. Um, it was released on Netflix, so easily accessible. Um, but n- nothing we were terribly excited about. And I think that's because we maybe, perhaps it's fatigue, but I think like uh, Tilo Kuzik and, and Federico Fellini there are asking the question of like, does watching this war film or does the making of this war film contribute in any way to, to changing the world that we know because ostensibly all war films that we have watched or talked about in our lifetimes ostensibly come to the, the similar conclusion which is that war is bad okay and is <laughs> that is that a is there anything about that idea that is transformed either by this movie or, or just in general in the conversation that we have about war movies 
I mean, I don't know. I, I think I look back to 1917, which is a film I actually did like, but right. I found I was more enamored with the filmmaking rather than the the subject of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this movie, why I wasn't excited uh, to watch it was because just from the promos and the things that I had seen, it felt like pretty well-worn territory for me. Right. Um, just having seen a lot of movies, a lot of war movies, this didn't seem like... And, and this is... Okay, this is a weird side thing as well, because it's not all this film's fault. Right. Um, because All Quiet on the Western Front is a very classic war story. Yeah. Other films have based sort of thing like, tropes what? around it. It's almost like how sci-fi kind of cannibalizes itself, like... Like the way that everything feels like a certain thing from forever ago, and that's why we think it feels like old hat. So, like, that's just in the nature of if you're making this film with this story. Not least of which that it was it was a best picture winner in 1930. Yeah. So, yeah. like, there's yeah. I mean, that's kind of exactly it. So, um, I just I, I learned nothing new. Right. Uh, it was a well-made movie, mm-hmm. a, a very well-made movie. Uh, it displayed the horrors of No Man's Land and the futility of what was going on behind the scenes. I mean, I knew that stuff. I, not everyone does, and that, that's why mileage may vary. I'm talking about very specifically why I wasn't excited for it. And to be honest, it delivered nothing that I didn't expect it to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, I you, you, I care on an empathetic level because I feel the acting was good and uh, the character work and the script was good and the way that they shot it was good. Like, I care about the characters in the movie and what was happening to them. Uh, but again, it's a story that is so old and terrible. And I don't think at this point, to, to, the, to sort of what you were discussing before, that it moves the needle mm-hmm. uh, in a anti-war stance. Right now, I mean... At at my most cynical, mm-hmm. I'll use the term that you hate, <laughs> uh, which would be like, yeah, it's Oscar bait because like it's nothing. It's nothing that that we haven't seen in a, in this format before. Quite literally, I mean, it's a different film, of course, but it did already win Best Picture once. <laughs> like uh, the, the story, did. Yeah. yeah, no, a long time ago, of course. Yeah, but like I, I was worried that there'd be nothing new to it. And I felt like there was nothing new to it for me. That doesn't mean, and I want to. I want to be very clear. This is not an indictment on the quality or the craft of the film. I think it is a very well-made movie. Um, uh, but you combine the subject matter with how old it feels, with also like it's not doing anything. It's not moving. It, this movie's not going to move the needle like, into an anti-war thing. And this movie is very anti-war. But it also... It, I wouldn't say it goes so far as glorifying war, but it uses the... the. In fact, I don't think it glorifies war at all. But it uses the backdrop of it to tell us that war is bad. Mm. <laughs> and that's kind of it. Uh, and I know that this is from a German soldier side, and I understand that, and that is a... Angle that I have not seen a terrible amount due to the fact that I am uh, living in the United States and from there. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, man. Like, it, there's there's something to be said. I, I would like to think that 
uh, when a film is as good as this movie kind of is from a technical level, that it should have some sort of emotional hit to it for me. Mm-hmm. And it did not. I, I felt bad but not moved. Uh, and I walked away from it, per, again, personally, not learning or feeling anything new about a subject matter that is very real and very horrific. So it just felt like, look at these horrors. Mm. Look at them. You know them? Cool. Bye. <laughs> and like, I, I'm like, ah, ah, God. <laughs> so like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I feel like, I, and I just want to say this. I feel like my reaction is very, could be considered, I'm not quite sure, I'll give it a 50-50, very small-minded. Right. Um, But that's how I feel about it. Um, And that's hard, it's hard to review it fairly, I feel like. I can discuss it fairly, I feel. But like, I'm not going to say whether or not you should, like, you know how we always like, eh, watch it. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that here. Right. Uh, uh, we'll talk about it more, and we'll go into a little more of the specifics. But I don't feel like I'm the person to tell you whether you should watch this movie or not. Hmm. I definitely don't want it to win Best Picture, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and I don't think it will. Right. Um, I don't know. That's what, how did you feel about it? Like, what was your what was your? I mean, because you weren't like looking forward to it, but you also weren't like as against it as I was. <laughs> uh, well, j- just simply for the fact that I didn't know much about it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I hadn't seen the Lewis Milestone uh, uh, original either. Um, I, so I was just curious more than anything and, and willing to, to take a uh, tr- stroll down the rabbit hole. And I had the book. And I have found the book, um, you know, in almost the same way, which is that I think it's very beautifully written. Um, it's more than anything, it's really interesting to, to sort of think about the actual daily life of what it, li- what it is to live in the trenches. And, mm-hmm. and the sort of um, the, the first third of the book that I'm in through right now is really dealing with, like, the petty squabbles that go on when you are deprived of... Uh, your everyday comforts. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a really, uh, it actually happens in the movie as well. There's a scene where they talk about like what it means to shit in front of another person and how they quickly forget that that was a taboo at one stage. Right. And now it is just an open air thing. And that actually happens in the movie as well. Um, and so uh, I, I was not, uh, you know, again, not particularly enamored for it, but I'm, I, I never actually am uh, for a war movie for, for most of the reasons that are kind of outlined in, in that Fellini quote. Um, I think in that respect, you know, the I would just say, again, another a film about war that has no scenes of warfare in it uh, is um, Mikhail Haneke's film, The White Ribbon, mm. uh, which really outlines how the petty squabbles escalate uh, almost mysteriously within a small community that is eventually leading up to World War I. Um, and you're absolutely right, which is that there's a quality to this film by Edward Berger, which, is, which feels almost uh, procedural, you know, like mm-hmm. there is a straight line to it. Now, the, the big addition to, you know, there's two, two major points of uh, change here between uh, this and the novel and the original filmed version. Um, and um, uh, by the way, I just also want to shout out the YouTube channel uh, Cinematography, I believe mm. it's called, uh, which does a full analysis breakdown between the three versions. And I, and I, I actually thought, um, you know, so there was a, a, a 1930s version, a 1979 t- made-for-TV version, and then this version here. And this is the first version that is actually doing it um, in German uh, with a German cast. Um, both the other two were American-made films, 
films uh, featuring American English speaking actors, um, you know, uh, some with uh, a mixed degree of accents and what have you. Um, so I certainly appreciated it from that point of view. And um, I think the, 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 the key takeaway that the film offers is, which is evident in the book, but does more explicitly here in the movie, is adding some plot lines around the decision-making apparatus that goes around how people end up in the trenches. And, uh, you know, in here there's a, 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 a sequence uh, where, uh, featuring Daniel Brühl uh, about uh, the signing of the Amistad, uh, which ends the war. And and basically how that is perceived and, and you know, gets into the thing that you kind of talk about there, which is that... Um, uh, large swathes of uh, older people tend to be having squabbles to uh, which 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 un- often unbeknownst to them leads to the deaths of hundreds and in this case millions of people uh, millions of young people uh, there's a great uh, thing in the book and I believe it's in the other two versions of the film where someone uh, makes the suggestion uh, that the best way to fight a war is to mark out a piece of land and have both, countries cabinet ministers come to it and duke it out and whoever wins that wins that war right right, like, right. Like, like like don't involve any other of your military might just involve the actual people who are, who are making that decision um as you say beautifully made uh absolutely stunningly made and i think what what our if i could if i were to categorize the way you are feeling the way i'm sort of somewhat feeling the way i think you know, most people will approach this movie is, is there's a sense of indifference to this, right? Like there's a sense of like, we've seen this kind of movie before. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, you know, movie, what have you got to offer us? And I, <laughs> and, and in a way, I think that is fascinating because that is more revelatory about the time we live in rather than the movie, because I think this movie is almost out of time, uh, out of place, out of time. If this, if this particular movie, you know, think back just a few years ago, uh, Christopher Nolan made Dunkirk, which was, you know, widely celebrated and still being discussed today in terms of war movies. Didn't like it. Uh, uh, And and to be fair, I had the same reaction to it that, that we did. I think I call that movie the IMAX experience of World War II. Um, in, in this case, but, but I, uh, the other thing that was interesting in this cinematography, uh, video essay, uh, and I'll hopefully link to it in our show notes so you can check it out. It's really, really, really good, by the way. Um, was the idea that when this movie came out in 1930 and it was referencing a war that had ended not so much, yeah. not so long before the release of the movie, the, uh, Germany, for example, was just in the early stages of being uh, overrun by Nazism. And Goebbels and Adolf Hitler read the the script, uh, read the read the novel, and felt that it was dangerous to society at that time because it would sway people to avoid jo- you know joining the ranks of militarism. And um, they, in fact, uh, when the movie was released in Germany, they were uh, Goebbels, I think, as the minister of propaganda, um, actually arranged or uh, surreptitiously arranged for violence to happen at the screenings so as to kind of like suggest that this was outwardly uh, a bad um, uh, and uh, inauthentic experience of the German, uh, the German experience of war. And... um, Checks out. (laughs) Yeah, totally checks out. And then in a few, you know, if we were to measure it, uh, in, in a short decade later, Germany would march on to World War II. And I think that's leading to this question of like um, that, that uh, Kizik is mentioning in the opening of this book, which is that the movie, despite its immense popularity, its immense um, uh, celebration, 
uh, I, I can read your reviews of, of it at the from the time from Variety, didn't prevent or didn't lead us on a, as a collective whole to um, really question the foundations of how wars are run and why we should be engaged in war. If anything, wars marched on. Now, it's not on a movie to particularly to exactly define uh, how culture changes, but movies, you know, in many ways are, you know supposed to affect culture in some way. And that movie certainly did. But I want to read this review from uh, a Variety, um, uh, which said that this was the best war picture ever filmed. This was from 1930, uh, which is the all quiet on the Western Front. The League of Nations could make no better investment than to buy the master print, reproduce it in every language for every nation to be shown every year until the world, the word war shall be taken out of the dictionaries. Yeah, I mean, th- that's the thing, right? Like, the original and war movies sort of since then, I think it's almost, it's almost, ooh, ooh, it's almost like a vaccine um, where, like, it's definitely necessary, and I think that is a great quote, and that is true because back then, I feel like a lot of people were like Paul in this movie. They were excited to go fight for their homeland because... There's been a shit ton of propaganda on every side getting people to join and go kill themselves for their country. Right. Um, the But then a, a thing in a visual medium, especially then as fresh as film, um, gets to show you the fucking horrors of it that you don't get to see until the excitement has worn off otherwise in real life and you get to the front lines and you're like, oh, fuck, what the hell? Like, th- doing that is important. And, and that's not to say, I think, too, that movies like this aren't important and shouldn't exist. Of course they should exist. War movies, I think, do. But I think like a vaccine for a specific ailment, it does sort of lose its effect because you get used to it. Things become normalized. A lot more people today understand war is hell mm. uh, than I feel like did back in World War One. It's it, there, certainly there's a, in the case of the, the the characters in this movie. Oh yeah, but like that's I think that's 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 what this movie's trying to do is sort of show that like there's like yay rah rah nationalism and everyone's psyched for it until you get there. Do you um, think there's a place but, where um, someone who's never thought about that, uh, you know, never thought about like the the way in which particularly young people can be manipulated into uh, a nationalist point of view? Uh, would step into war, might find this of value. Yes, but I think that number has dwindled. If this is your happens to be your first movie like this and you experience it and it has that effect, then it is worthwhile. If one person has that, it's definitely worth the while. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much media now that um, I think we're over-inundated with it and it's it's not having the the as each one individually is not having the protective effect of 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 the point of why i think they're supposedly made mm. um but that you know again it doesn't mean it's bad it just means like the protection isn't 100% there and actually on that point yeah uh i'm going to use the the term protection to transition ourselves completely off topic oh my god <laughs> and go to today's sponsor while today's sponsor cannot protect you from the horrors <laughs> of war, great transition, Matt. Uh, what it can do is protect your internet security. We're talking about NordVPN again this week. Um, actually, speaking about security, 
I've been talking to a lot of uh, creative friends of mine over on the Nebula side of things. And uh, recently, one of the folks actually got their whole website, their whole YouTube channel hacked, and it turned into like a dump for like cryptocurrency and shit. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, and that's not surprising, really, because like it's all about phishing with the pH, right? Right. People are trying to scam you for your contact list and your, your passwords and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and it's getting better and better. I get emails from like I, I'm using air quotes here. My bank, right? <laughs> uh, that are looking more and more sophisticated every time, and I have to check all the numbers. So it's easy to think one could slip through. That's why actually I do really like NordVPN because they have some really good phishing protection. It's a kind of like a service that fishes for phishing links to make sure that they don't get to you, mm -hmm. which is really nice. Also, they have like things like malicious ad blockers and, and the whole dark web monitoring thing to let you know if your password has been leaked so you don't have to worry about it. Right. But then, of course, there is the virtual tourism you could use by connecting to one of their fast servers to mask your IP around the world, and you could take a virtual vacation to uh, basically to any country that has a more impressive Netflix library than our own. Have you found any from New Zealand yet? I have not. So I went in, and I'm trying to find them. I think I'm going to send you a list because I have some, I, I don't want to, maybe we'll save it for next week. I want I want to like be like, is this a good one? Right. Um, but no, you, there's definitely there's definitely some gems over there. So anyway, if any of that is of concern to you, and it just might be, uh, please go to nordvpn.com slash aboutmovies to get a huge discount on a two-year plan with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And I believe they actually throw a couple free months in depending on when you actually go to that link. The, the deal changes all the time. Oh, wow. uh, it would really help out this podcast. Mm -hmm. And that would be... A nice way to both protect yourself and protect the, the again air quotes livelihood of your 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 humble only podcast about movies hosts. You know we're doomed already, and NordVPN can only help us. Um, it can only help us so far. NordVPN it can't solve war, <laughs> but it can protect your internet security. All right, fair Sh enough. Shahir, back to you. <laughs> Did we do it? Was we, that good? That that was great. Uh, I'm going to transition back now to talking about war and war movies. Can we and... just keep talking about NordVPN? <laughs> I actually would rather like it's. I know. I know. You know that was an ad read. I do really like the service, and that's something I like. And now we're talking about war movies, which is something I don't like. <laughs> um, I think, like I said before, I think the thing that's interesting here is. You know, in, in fact, we haven't actually talked about much about the movie, um, but but I think the thing is interesting is that the movie feels out of place and out of time in terms of what its cultural impact is going to be, at least within this this room. Um, uh, you know, like if we measured the impact of a film like <laughs> like like Tar or Everything Everywhere All at Once against a movie like uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is ostensibly about a bigger issue that affects more people and that historically has more relevance to the lives of human beings or well... or, or to to the way in which humanity operates. Yes, the uh, Tar maybe on Everything mm -hmm. Everywhere All at Once. If we're talking about real actual murder and death. In a war, of course. The concepts, however, of the movie, depending on what you're what you're discussing of of, of effect on, and again, I'm using so many air quotes, mm -hmm. air quotes, humanity. Mm -hmm. You could argue that everything, everywhere, all at once, affects more air quotes people. But again, right. if you're if you're if you're using the framework of cinema and not like actual factual things that happen, you know what I, you get what I'm saying? I'm, I guess what I'm getting at here <laughs> is that I don't think it's the movie. I think as a society and a culture, 
We are. Do we live in a society? <laughs> we do live in a society, <laughs> and we are inundated with material that is telling us something. And, and and as you say, no matter how well executed this film is, it is telling us something that fundamentally, again, it may just be us in the room, um, feel like we know and understand at the outset of this movie. For example, a film like Son of Saul, which was a movie that we discussed mm-hmm. many, yes. many years ago, um, was an interesting one because it actually dealt with a really profoundly difficult moral quandary about a person who was uh, uh, a commandant in, uh, or um, you know, his role was to actually lead his fellow uh, Jewish uh, people of Jewish faith into the Holocaust chambers, and that was his job. Mm-hmm. And it kind of led to an interesting moral, you know, quandary about like the, what we do to survive, and and what we are willing to do to survive, and not even just that. Um, what do we do when we have no choice uh, but to do uh, horrible, despicable things? Um, and and I think that you know, like th- as you're kind of pointing out. The, the challenges of the moral quandary are interesting. Now, I think one thing that uh, director Edward Berger kind of points out here that uh, I, I think is actually a really fascinating point, and perhaps maybe not as well articulated in the film, is that the German, the German approach to world war, there's a, there's a hilarious family guy quote <laughs> or moment in this, um, where, where basically uh, I think Peter Griffin visits uh, Germany and he says, oh, you know, like, Prior to 1930, we were thriving. We had the world's greatest economy. And then they're like, they skip over 1930 through 1940, uh, 1950. They just like, they right. just drive past it really quickly. Um, so we don't talk about that. But that's actually not the case. <laughs> that's actually not the case with German history, which is that they do go, uh, spend a lot yep. of effort and time uh, memorializing the horrors of what they've done. Yeah, because because here's a novel fucking idea. Germany chose to learn from its fucking bad past. Mm-hmm. Something that America is real bad at. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I applaud. And again, let me, let's be very clear. Uh, much of that was like sort of put on to Germany like as well, and then they chose to continue it. Like when you lose world wars, things happen. <laughs> um, but they, they, they took very vast and uh i would say very important efforts to not hide from their past but rather try to learn from it right i know today is more complicated and etc but like yeah that's something that is very i think admirable uh yeah there's, about um, about the uh, current germany yeah there's a uh, a book that was actually adapted into a film called just mercy by brian stevenson um, I, I recall had a passage about this where uh, it was essentially debating the quality of the death penalty. And Brian mm. Stevenson is an advocate for um, uh, not having the death penalty in place. Uh, and he was visiting Germany and talking about the, the death penalty in America. And when he asked why Germany doesn't support a death penalty, uh, a scholar, a noted scholar, uh, approached him and said, look, we're a country that killed a massive swath of our population. Um, and so for us to instigate the death penalty requires us to reconcile those two things. Like the, we're basically entering into the same equation, which is the public killing its own population again, no matter what the cost. And I think that was a really interesting, um, exploration of the idea of how do we deal with the consequences of our past trauma. And Mm. I think what it gets into here, that is a really interesting, you know, topic when we think about, um, the way in which uh, American movies have portrayed its soldiers versus the way, you know, like almost the the, the lack of films about um, the the way in which German soldiers operated is that we have culturally accepted 
that Americans, for example, or Western um, people on the um, Axis, or the Allies, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, don't get that confused. Uh, are able to portray themselves in war as heroes, right? Like, even even if well, they yeah, do... yeah, because they won. We, this is the... And in, in, in this film, uh, there, is a, there is a direct reference to that idea, which is that the, this is the language of the victorious versus the language of the defeated. Yep. Yeah, you know, as, they, as they're negotiating the armistice. And I think there's something interesting that happens here, which is that this is a film which ostensibly talks about four young people who don't have... Uh, a massive moral position on the war other than um, going to fight told. for their own country. What they're told. Yeah. yeah you know, like, and, and that to, to those characters is a noble thing. And as the world will slowly um, decide over the course of the next, not just uh, World War I, but over the course of World War II as well, is that they, they were in fact wrong. Um, and that is not something that the, well, I think soldiers at war in American movies don't have to to sort of navigate that moral problem in their representation. You know, we can always say that someone going into no man's land who is or someone going into World War Two who's American, the soldiers on uh, the beaches at Normandy um, in America will be portrayed as heroes, even if, you know, even if as they kill other people. And that is something that. Uh, a film like this being made by a German director about German soldiers mm-hmm. has to negotiate. And I think it negotiates it in a pretty interesting way, which is that the characters are never portrayed as heroic. In fact, they some of them do downright despicable things. Well, uh, but, but, but then we're sort of confronted with the, this is the reality of the world they live in. And there's a really telling scene... Um, that I think is beautifully done. I, I haven't come across it in the book yet. I'm, as I say, I'm only a third of the way through. Right. But where Paul uh, attacks someone who's about to kill him in the trenches and then, you know, stabs him several times over in what we perceive to be self-defense or, you know, just the nature of the, the environment. It's war. The yep. nature of war. Um, but this person stays alive. And, and then he stuffs, you know, he stuffs mud into his mouth trying to get him to, you know, to be quiet. He is traumatized by this uh, as, as anyone would be. Um, but then has remorse for this person's death. And, and I think there's, the movie is kind of towing this like interesting line between I am responsible for this person's death. In fact, it is me who has done this, but I am also remorseful for the fact that I have done, that, that I have done this. And I think that's a, that's an interesting line that doesn't, we don't often see, in a film like Saving Private Ryan, for example, or right. um, you know, even in a film like The Thin Red Line or anything like that, we don't often see that sort of like, you know, that navigation of I'm on the right side, but I'm still killing somebody. You know, like how do we how do we deal with that? You know, like we did, you know, we look at a film like Jarhead, for example, or you know, recent movies about war. Uh, enemy combatants are dealt with, you know, dispatched pretty pretty easily. We don't, you know, really see them. They don't have faces. They don't tell. To, we don't tell stories about them and that sort of thing. But I think there's an interesting thing that happens here because of the very unique historical place that this film has come from, and the fact that it is reforming or it since. Um, bringing back to the fore a film that w- that has previously been told by Americans about German soldiers. You know, like it gets back to that question that I that, that we had about um, a film like Pinocchio uh, a few weeks ago, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is telling a historical story about Italians, but clearly from the lens of an uh, of a Western filmmaker. Oh yeah, uh, the, the voice of this film is incredibly authentic. Like, yeah, incredibly no... authentic, but also like I think having to navigate that question that Brian Stevenson raises, which is like, how do we 
portray this thing that we were responsible for. You know, a film like Downfall, which became memefied, you know, over the years, I think um, really gets into this as well because it's a German film about Adolf Hitler's last days. Um, and I think I think there is um, there is something to that that is um, both meaningful and interesting. I know both, you know, you and I kind of did feel um, uh, a little indifferent to both seeing this film and to executing it that way. But I think, you know, it it isn't just a question of like how it's executed. I think at the heart of this, maybe the reason why it's also resonating in some way to, to, to make it all the way to the Academy Awards is that it speaks to this idea of like, reconciling our own past you know like reconciling where we come from and and i'm using the term we there as the german people or german filmmaker reconciling the past of germany within that war against the horrors of what the war actually was and and you know i think it does a couple of things which is you know um uh suggest that uh you know not everyone who fought on the german on the german side were uh gung-ho nationalists who you know believed in the death of uh, of their enemy more than anything um they were you know like people indoctrinated into or you know like uh, made to believe that you know the military is great and war is great you know like led into a system that really is just using them as fodder and the right? other thing that i the, that i will uh, credit this movie to and i appreciate when war movies do even though it's very rarely taking the majority of the time is showing the people that believe in a side, in this case, Germany, mm. um, who also can see how things are going in the writing on the wall and mm. wanting to save lives. Be like, yeah. look, this, you know, uh, the uh, the character, uh, you know, Daniel played Burrell. by uh, Daniel Burr, Burrell? Burrell. 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 Uh, Nemo, ca- Z- Zemo, Zemo himself. Zemo, yeah, yeah. Uh, just dancing at, <laughs> uh, in Mandapore. Um and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Actually, shout out to Princess Weeks. If you haven't watched Princess Weeks', uh, she just released a ca- uh, Captain America and the Winter Soldier uh, sort of like series review. It's she, even she admits it's very late. It's super fucking good. Uh, talking about all the different uh, in- intricacies and and uh, uh, good things and failures of that series. But um, the the specific thing of his character being a uh, government official and or diplomat. I don't remember the, his official position. Um, but the uh, he's sent with a team to negotiate on. I love I, I love that it's like uh, and this is how it used to be. Like they just take trains to a middle point mm. and meet on trains, right? Um, uh, to discuss things, and they're in a losing position. And all he wants to do, he he's been given permission to surrender, but he's trying to make it so the fewest people. Germans in particular, but overall people have to die before them, right? Because war isn't a thing that just stops when mm. the diplomats and the politicians say it does. Mm. Um, it has to ramp down. Um, and, and in this case, uh, that communication line um, gets thwarted. Well, yeah, and and so this this is one thing I will I really will give it a, a credit to this movie. We see a lot of different sides of a lot of different people. We see politicians and diplomats trying to save lives, reading the writing on the wall, and trying to be good leaders and 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 then ultimately kind of failing in a certain sense. Mm. We also see the other side of that, which is zealots uh, in the in that general, um, uh, Fr- Fredericks, I believe, mm. uh, General yeah. Fredericks, uh, who knows the war is over but wants to go out in glory and win something before the war is over, which is fucking stupid. But I he mean, has that he has that uh, he has that sort of conversation where he talks to one of I think his lieutenants, 
who uh, has a you know th- this younger lieutenant comes from a place of probably a little bit more wealth. Yeah, and privilege Major von than, Brixdorf. Yeah, uh, comes from a place of wealth and privilege than he does. You know, they uh, his family runs a uh, is a saddle manufacturing company right, or, or something, something like that. that, and so he'll have a job. He'll go, he he's going to go back to his job. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this this general, you know, says outright, "I am a soldier." And I will always be a soldier. And what is a soldier without war? So he, in, in essence, kind of um, is not trying see- to put himself out of business. But he, but like the point he's seeing is- the writing on the wall when it comes to him. And for him, the fodder is irrelevant. He doesn't think about it in those terms. He doesn't think about the lives on a one-to-one level like Daniel Brühl's character does, who has to who has dealt with the fact that his son has died during the war. Mm-hmm. You know. But like I guess my my point is I, I appreciate that it showed the different reasons mm. why a ton of people died. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, that's always good to see. Um, that I, there are there are people... It, it's very rarely are, are things as cut and dry as good and evil. Right. It happens. <laughs> and the morals of that you can get into it. We can all get into it at a different time. But in any of these situations, in most of them, there is... There are people fighting internally on both sides of that conflict. I mean, and we've also seen how far, I mean, even in the last few years in the United States, and there's been many other times, how far fucking crazy people and zealousy can get. Right. Uh, we are not immune to the psychopaths that cause massive damage before a good change can happen. Right. Um, it's, it's a weird human fucking trait where we just like destroying ourselves because we're fucking dumb. And so you see characteristics of that behind this and when the war is finishing, when when literally it's supposed to be quiet on the Western Front. Right. And they command one last attack to go die. I actually loved Paul's, you know, because he, he's sort of seeing new recruits being brought to the front line at the same time. This, and this was actually, um, again, as an adaptation, uh, this uh, adaptation is quite different from the book you know like um, a lot of the stuff that I'm reading in this does not appear in the book and I think the movie actually rightly changes things around in really smart ways um, but he is seeing uh, new fresh recruits being brought to the front line and he uh, is witnessing their kind of somewhat uh, excitement for what is about to happen but also like he is entirely he is so broken at this point that he isn't you know you can tell that he doesn't want to go back to war yeah but he's like well that's the order I guess that's what I'm doing and the ir- the beautiful irony is is that you know the beautiful poetic but not not good irony is that he dies at 11 o'clock um, you know, he is stabbed right as the as the as they sign for peace. Yep. Um, or as it goes into effect. As it goes into effect, and um, that that is the sort of the tragedy of the idea that um, you know. Again, I'm I'm, uh, I'm thinking about um, uh, Tony Scott's film Crimson Tide, uh, and they have a debate at that. Crimson Tide is excellent, by the way. Again, again, <laughs> another brilliant war film. That doesn't, you know, that is about the internal conflicts, uh, the internal moral choices. But there's a quote there about Carl von Clausewitz, the philosopher, uh, who says that war is an, uh, war is a continuation of political uh, means when communications have broken down, yeah. um, or something like that. And then the retort is, uh, at some point, war becomes self-serving until it's, it, it, it goes beyond that; it becomes self-serving. Well, yeah, I mean, you you look into how economies are run. Again, not going. We are not the only podcast about economies. Mm. Uh, the industrial war complex is legit and literally runs a, a fuck ton of the most of the commerce around the planet. 
and like, including the movies that we consume and watch. Yeah. Yeah, and is and is a direct influence. Um, you know, uh, there's not you don't have to go far to look at, for example, the the films of Michael Bay, uh, which have been directly supported by the U.S. military and the way in which they portray soldiers and hero- MCU. Heroism. MCU. Uh, look yeah. at where we came from. Iron Man, who was a weapons manufacturer who learned his fucking lesson yeah. and like walks away from it in Iron Man One, and then everything is rah rah military after that because yeah. they started giving the money and access. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, you know, so I think. A little there Iron is a, Man too. There is a place, there is a time when this film, I think, would be far more celebrated. It is amazing that it has been nominated for an Academy Award, um, you know, uh, but, but I could see a different time and a different place for this particular movie being as celebrated and as, and as um, divisive as it was in 1930, you know, like where it was actually calling to attention things. But, but yeah. we, are, we now live in an age where all, all I, I struggle to think of a, of a war movie that is pro-war, despite the Truffaut quote, um, you know, which you kind of alluded to earlier, which is that every, every anti-war movie inadvertently becomes pro-war by just the sheer depiction of war unto itself. And maybe that's like leading into that Crimson Tide thing, which is that war uh, ultimately serves itself. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I could... I do think that this is an incredible piece of filmmaking. I, I want to, you know, uh, point out both the cinematographer, the colorist, and the music by Volker Bertelmann, uh, which I just, I actually love the sort of Baroque, uh, oddly timed um, percussion and strange beats that, that yeah. you felt were kind of leading to something but weren't burr, really. Burr, yeah, burr. And, then, and then eventually would kind of get to something towards the end. I actually really loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was beautifully done. And um, there's something about, you know, like, this is a Netflix original uh, release. Uh, there's something about the way Netflix films uh, go through the process. I know someone who works on uh, Netflix only releases, and it is a like in terms of quality control, it is really hard to do. They actually run training courses right. on how to uh, what needs to happen for a film to appear on Netflix. Um, but I think yeah, there's something about the way this film looks and is photographed. It's unearthly beautiful and you know we've had beautiful war movies before you know Terrence Malick's Thin Red Line is, is one that comes to mind um, but it is gorgeous to look at despite the fact that it is really about the horrors of the world against that gorgeous exterior yeah I mean I don't know if I'd call it gorgeous really? I think it I think it is effective I um, thought it was uh, stunning to look at absolutely I, stunning again I, I feel as though people should not listen to me uh right. about in this particular case in this one case <laughs> right uh every other time i am infinitely correct okay um but here uh i think and i maybe i couldn't get past it i again i don't think it is shot poorly i mm. think it shot well um but i didn't ever look at it and be like wow mm. um but that could be Everything else I talked about sort of bleeding into that. I completely want to admit that up front. Like, right. that, that is entirely possible. Right. Um, yeah. Well, uh, that has led us to... Uh, we are now narrowing down the field of the Oscar movies. It, it actually feels trite to, to discuss this in the context of the Oscars because I think that, you know, ostensibly, again, I agree that I think the movie is bigger than that. And it's just not effective in that we are out of time with this movie. But we are, as as it's we are, also, 
Yeah, yeah, it's also not it's not entirely again as you said the movie's fault that it is not as effective. It's like it is and it isn't and it's strange and it's it, uh, it's whatever. us, you know. Yeah, it's it, us. It, it's always Actually, that. before we before we transition out, I do uh want to bring up the story that I was going to talk about before. So actually, I'll do this thing. I'll say this has been the only podcast about the film All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay. Um however, uh the thing that is also about us, the mm. movie going public is what the fuck oh, yes. AMC <laughs> is doing pricing. with its goddamn tiered seating prices. So Sheer and I have obviously heard about this. For those of you not in the know, uh, AMC has introduced what they are calling a sight line at right. AMC. And basically there's now going to be – they're, they're trying test things in New York and a couple other places, but they're planning on rolling this out. I'm actually hoping they don't. Right. Um, maybe by the time this airs, they'll have seen the error of their ways. Basically, they're going to charge different amounts of money for different seats in the movie theater, like a concert or a sporting event. Right. Fuck them. <laughs> I think this is the dumbest shit Right. For a trillion different reasons. You have uh, standard sight line, which I guess is the price of a movie. You have limited sight or value sight line, uh, which is the shitty ones in the front and the sides. And then premier or preferred sight line in the middle. Um, this has gotten me to the point where like, I'm actually thinking about canceling my AMC Stubbs thing. I'm just right. like, because Stubbs members, it doesn't matter. Like They'll just let you get whatever for the price that you pay for a regular movie ticket. But this is like... This is so fucking ugly on so many levels, in my opinion. Right. Elijah Wood had a great tweet. Uh, he tweeted, The movie theater is and always has been sac a sacred de uh, democratic space for all, and this new initiative by AMC Theaters would essentially penalize people of lower income and reward for higher income. Now, so that's one bit. I, 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 look, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea, but I fundamentally don't think it's a good idea because that's just not the way we have been... Um, uh, trained or acclimatized to the to, to movie ticket pricing. However, I will point out, tiered pricing exists in almost every other facet of our uh, entertainment and travel ways. You know, like we we paid tier pricing for uh, preferential seats on an airplane. We paid tier pricing for um, you know, like. Um, uh, uh, concert tickets. And all uh, of that is bullshit. It is all bullshit. My point being is that I don't you know, think that this should go ahead. I think it's a silly thing because we, we just haven't done it. But I also acknowledge that this is how the this is how we do everything. This is not how you get people to go back and stay at the movies. Right. We are now, so, so like, here's the thing. Yeah, when you're competing at a, at with a concert, streaming. At a concert, yeah. uh, you can't see Taylor Swift in person Anytime you want. Right. In, in in an airplane, you can't fly whenever you feel like it. Right. Now, nearly everyone has a magic rectangle that they can have in their pocket and mm. or, or has access to a screen and can see movies. Right. <laughs> it's not the same experience. That's not what I'm saying. But it's 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 We're competing in a different marketplace. Now what AMC's overheads and you know how their how their business is actually running and their profit sharing you know like I, have an I know idea. but the, but this is not the um you know to quote from the Mandalorian this is not the way this is not the way now yeah. uh, the and the other thing is like let's say I'm not saying this let's say it was a good idea <laughs> okay AMC I don't know about you but most movie theaters but AMC in particular I feel like is uh the most guilty here uh because of their sheer size mm -hmm. most every AMC theater I go to is understaffed and I guarantee you that those staff members are not paid enough to deal with people arguing about seats 
in now different price tiers, which will make sort of combative moviegoers and the experience of seat jumping and all of that stuff way more fucking of a problem for the people that work at your theaters. <laughs> and they are not going to give them the resources to handle it. I, I, I say that not knowing anything about their business model. They <laughs> will not. Wait, so you do want people to listen to you about this thing? Yeah, no, I'm done. Don't listen to me about all, all quiet on the Western Front. Don't right. listen to me about that. Right. Um, listen, listen to me about this. This you know is what's, bad. What, what's funny is I actually can think of a uh, – it's a very small – niche use case scenario where, where someone would actually like love this uh and then i i heard from a friend of mine uh who was like uh you know again i, I move in dad circles now sure um but he was like oh i've got this friend he was like whenever he, his kids want to go see a movie he's like great let's go see a movie and he goes to the movie and falls asleep so you know his kids watch the movie right, and, right, right. and he just happily is like yeah i just go take a two-hour nap and i was like i, I could just imagine a scenario where this guy's like oh you've got a seat that's like five bucks cheaper and like I can't see the movie, sign me up. Um, so maybe there's a use case scenario where it's like people just don't want to see, we're being forced to go to the movie and don't want to see it. <laughs> I guess. Uh, I will make a general, a general uh, guesstimate mm-hmm. on that. I, I am no way suggesting that. that no, is no, a, no, 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 no. I know, and I'm no way in suggesting what your friend is doing is not is not good or or that uh, it couldn't be beneficial. But I'm gonna guess this is just a this is just a shot in the dark. If you are the kind of person that can buy a price of a movie ticket to just go fall asleep in a theater, the five dollars doesn't truly matter to you. No, well, hang on, but you're you're missing the the point there, which is that. They're they're not going to the movie theater to sleep. They're taking the opportunity to sleep because they have to take other people to the movie theater. I understand. Theater. So they're in a care. I understand. Role. I'm yeah. still saying, and if that's the socioeconomic, and there's nothing wrong with the socioeconomic bracket, I'm just saying, I don't know if that five bucks really matters. Uh, well, then, anyway, no no shade at all, except to AMC. This is fucking stupid. Uh, you know, President Philip P. AMC, uh, uh, please listen to this show and don't do this. Uh, yeah. Another another tweet, and I, I don't think this is true, I uh, and I don't want this to be true, uh, but uh, someone wrote, AMC Theater says all ticket prices will be based on seat locations by the end of 2023. In other news, AMC Theaters will file for bankruptcy by the end of 2023. <laughs> I don't think that w- is going to be what happens. Um, but there's I mean, no way, this is my point, there's no way this is to make the experience better. No, yeah, that, 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 and I. The more I'm working for companies that are thinking about uh, their customer base, and I and I have got found myself in a position where I'm thinking about um, how companies present themselves to their customer mm-hmm. base. Uh, the more I'm thinking about what is important to the customer is feeling like they matter and feeling mm-hmm. like they're being delighted by the service they get. And none of like yeah, none of what we we're describing does that. You know, Netflix. Uh, <laughs> shout out to to Quickster if anyone remembers the entire Quickster debacle. Oh my god! With uh, with Netflix and their tiered pricing and what have you. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, and that's another thing. <laughs> Netflix also has a. Yep. And again, I love this move. No about password companies. sharing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, this was the same thing with the D and D shit that happened, which we will not get into here. Right. Uh, and it's the same thing that happens with Netflix. These companies. <sighs> They just like, I'm convinced in certain cases, soft release a thing to see how much people will get mad. And then the second that like it turns into a shitstorm, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That was a mistake. 
Right. Like, uh, and then they walk back, and it's a slow chip away at things we actually like about services that are provided to us for money. Right. Um, and and Netflix just did that with the password sharing thing. It's so fucking funny mm. how quick I think Netflix will die <laughs> if they mess with the password thing to a point. I'm not saying there's ways they can't get more money and have a more, and I use this term, again, air quotes, amicable pricing situation. Right. But checking your fucking IP address every month, mm. bitch, what if you don't have, not to mention, not to mention, most <laughs> people's IPs from standardized internet service providers are not, uh, are not actually like local, like it can change at your home. There's not probably to mention, a service. If you, if you use a great service like NordVPN <laughs> to do all these things I talked to you about, that's going to change as well. So, you, I mean, you could technically, actually, it's pretty easy. You can turn NordVPN on and off with a click of a button. Don't worry about that. The ad reads over. But my point is, <laughs> it's a dumb fucking thing Netflix is trying to do and then walked back. I'm hoping that AMC, though this is a very public, like, here's what we're doing. Look at us being helpful for you, consumer. Totally not for any shareholder needs whatsoever. Fiduciary duty be damned. We want to give you value. That's not what they're saying. Right. Um, fuck, man. Anyway. <laughs> Shahir. Yeah. <laughs> when you are not <laughs> on the Western front of ticketing fiascos. Where can folks find you? Uh, you know, I, I, I can say this very confidently. I would be hiding as far back from the front as possible at my website, www.shahirdaud.com. That's H-A-H-A-R-D-A-U-D.com. Matt, when you are charging different prices to hear you, to hear you, uh, tell, you tell us something that we shouldn't listen to versus tell us something that we should listen to, where can people find you? You can find me nowhere except if you pay five ninety nine <laughs> per minute, and then that's a special phone number that I'll give you later on. But if you want the middle thing, if you just want this stuff right now, you can find me at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram and PSN, and Emperor MSK on Twitter. Next week, we get small. <laughs> Real small. And uh, reviews have not been kind. So, Oh, really? I haven't yeah. looked. Yeah. Uh, I was really hoping for a kind of a, a, re- a reboot, um, yeah. but maybe not. Who knows? Uh, who knows? I could be wrong. I, and when I say reviews, I, didn't re- I haven't read full reviews. I've just heard reactions from people I trust uh, who get to go see these things early. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I guess I found the Ant-Man thing to be fun, you know, like actually sort of genuinely fun. Uh, I quite liked the last one, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, so I was hoping this would just be a fun time at the movies, um, but I might be wrong about that. I think this one's going to be a little more serious than the other Ant-Man movies. I think Kang, they're trying to set up, obviously, as the new big bad ever since Loki. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kang is a super interesting character, and I'm hoping that it uh, does it justice and makes other movies more interesting moving forward. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see next week. All Quiet on the Western Front with uh, Ant-Man and Quantum Mania. How about no? How about we just go see other movies? Like <laughs> like next week, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, and the following week, Women Talking. Women Talking. I'm here for it. All right. Until then, thanks for lending us your ears, everybody, and the holes inside them. Ew. Gross. Yeah. Bye, everyone. You're talking about my ear holes. Bye. Bye.